Hörmaschine. This is Hörmaschine 54. Hörmaschine 54. Abel and Kay. Abel und Kain. enough to interest you here?
before we go into detail with Abel and Kane, let's listen to what the assumptions are from today's perspective. I think that uh, President Xi's speech was of fundamental significance. It laid out a concept for globalization and some specific challenges and roads to a solution. But to me, the most important aspect was that it was an assertion by China of, of participating in the construction of an international order. One of the key problems of our period is that the international order with which we were familiar is disintegrating in some respects and that new elements from Asia and the developing world are entering it. What President Xi has done is to put forward a concept of international order in the economic field that will have to be the subject of conversation and the substance of the creation of an evolving system. And I would say to President Trump that one of the major achievements or impacts of President Obama was to withdraw America from some positions in which it was overextended, but also to create the fear that America was withdrawing from the world, even from places in which overextension would not apply and in which its contribution remains essential. So, President Trump will have to find a definition of the American role that answers the concern of many parts of the world that America was giving up its indispensable role of leadership in some categories and major contribution in, in others and to define what, where America can lead, where it must contribute, and in that process, help on the creation of an international order. your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother and came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, this being Cain, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10. And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother cries, or I'm sorry, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Verse 13. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out of out of this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. That's as far as we're going to get today. See, Adam was made from the ground, but Eve was, and Eve was made from man's rib. But the rest of mankind is to be produced by coming together of man and wife. We see this biblical, and Adam knew Eve, his wife. We're talking about intercourse all right they got together all right they made a baby it's the first time we see this verse in the bible but that's what it speaks of now some would argue that birthing of children was suspended while they were in the garden of eden i don't buy into that because one we don't know how long they were in the garden and then secondly god in genesis said in verse chapter 1 verse 28 he told them to be fruitful and multiply so the fact that this happened gives some credence to the fact that they may not have been in the Garden of Eden very long. That this happened rather quickly. Now, also, there's some interesting points. What did she name him? Her first son. Cain, right? So, some Bibles have it meaning spear. Um, Others have it meaning acquisition, possession, or acquired. And some, going back to the old Paleo-Hebrew and actually working through it, believe that it means uh, seed. It goes goes back to a long, you know, quite a ways back, meaning seed. You can find multiple people using multiple definitions for this. The one that seems to be most voted on is the acquired portion. And it's because the wording's going to change a little bit when we look at it this way. What she says is also very interesting. She says, I have acquired... I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, it can be translated, I have gotten the man with the Lord. Others have translated it, I have acquired a man, the Lord. 
See, Adam and Eve didn't feel that their struggles were going to be very long. What did God promise Eve? She promised that her seed would crush his head, right? And feeling that of Satan, right? And that he would bruise Satan's heel. Well, she's thinking upon this first birth that Cain is that seed. That through Cain, her redemption is already going to take place. She has no idea it's going to take as long as it is. She believes that Cain is the promised seed and that salvation was at hand. But we're going to later learn in 1 John that Cain was of the wicked one. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. This is a pointed one for, as we go through this, it kind of defines a few things. We're also going to get into Hebrews. So if you're going past 1 John, stick your finger in Hebrews because we'll be there in chapter 4 in no time. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 says this, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain was not the promised seed that salvation was at hand. Actually, he was the first in a long line of the serpent seeds. Think about that. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter 4. Verse 2, Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of ground. In contrast to what we just learned about Cain, being of the wicked one, Abel is actually the first one that is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 when it speaks of the hall of faith or men of faith that Hebrews 11 will go through. In Luke 11 and Matthew 23, we're going to find out that Abel was actually called a prophet. Luke chapter 11, it's in Matthew 23. We see that Jesus actually calls him a prophet. Now, the name Abel means vapor or vanity. So it could mean that Eve was a little bit disappointed that Cain was not the promised seed. It could also be prophetic of the possible short lifespan of Abel. You see, the idea in the early parts of the Bible is, is that you would name the child of an, in an event or in a way in which would predict their either their nature or their future. Right? It's like Methuselah means his death shall bring. Methuselah was... Old, exactly, 969 years. But when Methuselah died, that year was the year of the flood. So if you look, there's prophetic naming that takes place sometimes. God puts the name into the mind of the parents and says, this is what we're going to name our child. It's kind of like Jacob and Esau. What does Jacob mean? Heel catcher. Right, But it can also be dirty, rotten, conniving little trickster. Seriously. So, I mean, it can have multiple names, but when she named him Jacob, 
that was his nature, right? Eventually, Jacob and Laban get together, and then you got the two dirty, right, dirty, rotten, conniving little thieves working together against each other. They're trying to outsmart each other, right? The only difference is, is that Jacob's learning from Laban. You leave all your nightmares behind you. All right, and back. So Abel means vapor or vanity. Vapor or vanity. Now, we learn from Romans eight, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 20, that create, creation was subjected to futility. The words also can be translated vanity. So the idea or the concept of this is that life without God is what? Vanity. Now, there's some interesting stuff that gets put into Genesis chapter 1. I want you guys to make aware of it, be aware of it. There are some people that would imply that because certain words are lacking in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text that we get our New King James from, or King James from, that they were uh, twins. But there's nothing in here, and there's nothing in Genesis to support that. Cain and Abel, that they would have been twins. But there's no evidence that we can see for this. Now, in the same verse, we are told that Cain is a tiller of ground of the ground, which means he's producing food for his family and for the livestock. Abel is a keeper of the animals, right? And that's for clothing and sacrifice. It wasn't for food. No, because up until the time of the flood, after Noah lands on, Mount, on the mountains of Ararat, only then is flesh allowed to be consumed for food. There was no barbecue prior to the flood. No carne. No chicken. No nothing, all right? It was an all-vegetarian diet. <laughs> the one thing I want you to see, though, is both are honorable pro- pro- uh, professions. God's not cursing one and elevating the other. They're both noble and, and good professions. But here's something that we might be able to see an early connection, knowing what Cain's doing. The ground is cursed, right? So there is a possibility that knowing what was going to happen, Cain was identified with the curse on the ground because he was a tiller of the ground. They just throw that out there, and it was like, oh, that might be a neat one. Verse 3, and in the process of time, uh, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. So let's speak to offerings just for a moment. This is probably a thing that has been happening, been a regular practice. Adam and Eve more than likely were making sacrifices as well. Or Adam would have been. Um, And here, this is the first time as we go into this, this is the first time we're going to see that any of the sacrifices are rejected. I mean, it's the first time it speaks of sacrifice, but at the same time, Genesis doesn't really tell us what was put into place, but the fact that they're sacrificing means that they're doing something, right? Now, the idea about sacrifices is what do you do when you when you submit a sacrifice? What are you doing? Killing it. Exactly. That's the first part of it. But the second thing is, is that you're admitting that you're beneath the person to which the sacrifice is taking place, right? In this particular case, you're not God and you're sacrificing to God, all right? So they've been doing this possibly for quite some time. Now, here we see what, 
it's not really mentioned, so we're going to assume that sacrifice has been taking place prior to this. What we're seeing here is that this is the first sacrifice that gets rejected. But if they've been sacrificing all along, then it would seem that all of Cain's previous sacrifices were accepted. He's now an adult when this takes place. We're going to learn elsewhere that he was around 100 years old when all of this happened. Oh, he more than likely was giving sacrifices. Uh-huh. So some will say that it was because that this was not a sin offering that this sacrifice wasn't accepted. That could be part of the reason. Because he was a tiller of ground, he may have had to trade for Abel for the sheep that he was going to use for the sacrifice. But there, there really are two camps to this. All right, There are some saying that it had to be an animal sacrifice and it had to follow Levitical law. But Levitical law also allows for grain sacrifices, the grain offerings. What we're going to find out is that the offering had very little to do with this. What really was, and we're going to find out in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, that the real problem with it was faith. Now, it's not noted here in Genesis what the procedures for these offerings were, but more than likely, Cain knew what they were. And if he knew what those procedures were, then more than likely, Cain disobeyed that procedure as well. Now, back to verse 3. So, literally, it says, in the process of time means at the end of days. Now, we don't sure, we're not sure what this is. Is this days being a week, or is it a year, or is it an infinite amount of time, or I'm sorry, an indefinite amount of time? Is it meaning the Feast of first fruit? Well, think about it. There's been no seasons yet, right? God created the earth, and it was still doing the thing where the mists were coming, and then they were going back. They were coming up at night, watering the fields and everything, and then they were going back. There was water that flowed from underground springs. Remember those, everything came out of Eden? More than likely camped out there. That's where the uh, animals got the waters from. But they were still in this imperfect bio-environment that was slowly starting to decay. When it really changes is after the flood. But right now, I want you to think of it as still, God said everything was good. And then in that everything that's good, he placed Eden where they were before. Now they're outside of where everything was good. But we know that it's still, things are going well for them. We don't know what the end of days is. It can be an indefinite amount of time. We just don't know. But either way, there were offerings being presented. Now, Cain's offering was a grain offering. And like we said before, not all offerings required a sacrifice of an animal. But a sin offering, according to Leviticus, did. Now, here you also see to the Lord. And the Lord is in capitals, L-O-R-D. That means Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. Whenever you see L-O-R-D in capital letters, it's speaking of the personal name of God, which was Yahweh. Now, many believe that the first altar to the Lord would have been placed probably at the opening of the Garden of Eden, which was guarded by the cherubim and a flaming sword. The thing that I want you to notice here is that God's presence is still with man. He didn't leave him. He didn't say, goodbye, I'm out of here. You have people that today would say that God started it and then said he wants nothing to do with it. That we'll just, God created it. Oftentimes they're called deists. They 
believe in God. They believe that God did the creation, and then he's been hands off ever since. Man fell. But that's not the case. We see this because they're offering sacrifices to him already. I want you also to notice that God didn't uproot the Garden of Eden. He didn't trash it. Right? There's even a good chance that it still existed up until the day of the flood. God has always dwelt with man. In one form or another, he has always been here, as long as we've been here. Now, when we see people talking with God, or God appearing to them, that's called a Christophany. The only time possible, and we don't have any real evidence for this, is in the Garden of Eden when they were in their regular body, in their uncorrupted bodies, could they have possibly seen God in any sort of trinity. But after that, after sin nature came in, the only way that you could get to God the Father is through Christ. And so everything that you see after this is a Christophany. So when it talks about earlier when Jesus is, or when God's walking in the Garden of Eden and he says, Where are you? That's Jesus Christ walking in the Garden of Eden. That's the Christophany. Man has fallen. God has always appeared and always dwelt with man. He's never left him. Verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. The Lord respected Abel and his offering. So we know from Exodus 13 that God demands the firstborn. He says, blessed of every womb that is opened. And he's speaking of the animals. But of a donkey or a mule, it has to be brought and then it has to be purchased for a price. If it's not purchased, then it has to have its neck snapped. But of the firstborn child, he has to be redeemed. They have to go and pay a tax or pay to keep the firstborn. Otherwise, he's supposed to go to God and God's service. Now, the the literal translation of his flock and their fat, we're going to learn, is the fatness of them. Now, this could be the fattest of the firstborn. The idea here is that Abel is offering the very best stuff that he has. And it's an example of everything that we're supposed to do from this point on. God only wants your best. He doesn't want your cast off. He doesn't want your bad stuff. Turn to Malachi chapter 1. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. I want you to see how far man had fallen, and we do this same thing too. Verse 7 says, But you defile food on my altar, but say, In what way have we defiled you? This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. By saying, The table of the Lord is contemptible, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the layman sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? So says the Lord of hosts. If somebody were to come to your house, let's say, a president you respected, and you have that $150 bottle of wine that's been sitting there for the last six months, and you've just been looking for the opportunity to open it, wouldn't be one of the first things you pulled out. How about 
you know, you've had those steaks that you put in the refrigerator and those were going to be there for the, you know, you're planning on them for the Super Bowl, right? Thick ribeyes or whatever your favorite cut of meat is. And he walks in two days before the Super Bowl. What are you going to serve him? Your choice is cuts, right? You're just going to go crazy on all of the best stuff you have. Right? He's not going, he doesn't, he doesn't want the simple stuff. He doesn't want the... He's God. He expects it. He's given you everything. He expects you to give some of it back. Right? So it tells us that God respected or looked upon Abel's offer or looked upon Abel's offering. The idea here is that when he did it, there's a number of commentators that say that it was consumed. That Cain's wasn't. It was left there. That's how he knew it wasn't approved. But Abel's was. It's suspected that it was done by fire from heaven or a flaming sword. Public commentaries. <laughs> Found that one. All right. But the thing to remember is, is that God wants her best and he expects it. But the truth of the matter is, is the offering is really not about the sacrifice. God doesn't want the sacrifice. He's more wanting the heart and the person of the man or woman is giving the sacrifice. First off, if we truly love God and have faith in God, we will only want to give the best that we have to Him. And we'll also do it in an obedient way. We will give it to Him in a way that God wants us to give it to Him, the way that He's outlined, and we would follow those steps. The acceptance of the sacrifice was a sign of the righteousness of the individual that was now being imputed upon them. If the sacrifice was accepted, then the person was forgiven, and in that, he was declared righteous. Not by man, but by God. But, if the offering was rejected, then is the person righteous? But, let's stop here and go to the Middle East right now. Kissinger. That when we talk about international order, there are various components that are that that have already a strict structure, and they are acting on interaction with each other. The Middle East is a component in which the international order, as it was known, has disintegrated. The states that formed the international system in the Middle East are uh, themselves, several of them, dissolving, as we are seeing to some extent, in Syria and in Libya and even in Iraq. So first is the impact of the various elements in the Middle East on each other. There are a series of revolutions that are going on simultaneously and that are not always concurrent. There is the uh, upheaval against established states. There is the religious conflict between Shia and Sunni and, and other religious groups. 
there is the impact of outside countries uh, uh, on on the situation. So the first task that has to be undertaken is to attempt to calm the existing uh, the existing crises uh, of which Syria at the moment is the most notable. Uh, and uh, it needs to have the following elements. It needs to have a ceasefire which to some extent exists among the various parties. It needs to have a withdrawal of outside forces. Uh, it needs to have a definition of political units within the region that accept the status quo that will be defined in negotiations uh, in Kazakhstan, which are projected uh, uh, or elsewhere. Uh, this is the, uh, the first requirement. The second requirement is to prevent the region from de being dominated by one of the parties that is capable or think that it's capable of achieving military uh, dominance. And in that respect, some agreement between Russia, the United States, and Europe in some form would be uh, would be extremely important. I do not think it is possible to achieve universal peace in one negotiation. The first step that has to be taken is to restore an equilibrium and to have it guaranteed by countries that are willing to act concurrently and for the same objective.
1975, there was a confrontation between two powerful men in the capital of Syria. One was Henry Kissinger, the US Secretary of State. The other one was the President of Syria, Hafez al-Assad. The battle between the two men was going to have profound consequences to the rest of the world. President Assad dominated Syria. The country was full of giant images and statues that glorified him. He was brutal and ruthless, killing or imprisoning anyone he suspected of being a threat. But Assad believed that the violence was for a real purpose. He wanted to find a way of uniting Syria and using that power to stand up to the West. He wanted to unify the Arabic countries. Kissinger was also ruthless. So why did God not respect Cain's offering? Because it was not given in faith. And since his offering wasn't consumed, Cain became angry. But the problem was, is who did he become angry with? Well, first, he, he's, he's angry with Abel, but who else is he angry with? God, right? His countenance fell. Does this mean that going into this, that Cain's heart was any less pure than Abel's heart? Does it mean that Abel was more righteous than Cain going before God to offer the sacrifice? No, it wasn't. I mean, what was the purpose of sacrifice? Right. For sin, right? In order to cover sin. The difference between the two was faith. When they came together and then they did this at the altar, Abel's was taken because of what Abel's heart was. Cain's wasn't. Kissinger believed that history had always really been a struggle for power and also between groups and nations. But what Kissinger took from the Cold War was a way of seeing the world as an interconnected system and his aim was to keep that system in balance and prevent it from failing. All the dislocations we now, now experience, there also exists an extraordinary opportunity to form for the first time in history a truly global society carried up by the principle of interdependence. And if we act wisely and with vision, I think we can look back to all this turmoil as the birth pangs of a more creative and better system. If we miss the opportunity, I think there's going to be chaos. And it was this idea that Kissinger said to impose on the chaotic politics of the Middle East. But to manage it, he knew that he was going to have to deal with President Assad of Syria. President Assad was convinced that there would be a real and lasting peace between the Arabs and Israel if the Palestinian refugees were allowed to return to their homeland. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were living in exile in Syria, as well as in Lebanon and Jordan. Have you Lebanon found that the Palestinians here want to integrate with the Syrians at oh, all? Oh, no. No, never. They don't want not here or neither in Lebanon or in Jordan, never. No, because they want to, to stay as, as a whole, as a Palestinian. As a, they call themselves those who go back. Al-A'idun in, in, in Arabic. Assad also believed that such a peace would strengthen the Arab world. But Kissinger thought that strengthening the Arabs would destabilize his balance of power. 
So he set out to do the very opposite, to fracture the power of the Arab countries by dividing them and breaking their alliances so they would keep each other in check. Kissinger now played a double game, or as he termed it, constructive ambiguity. In a series of meetings, he persuaded Egypt to sign a separate agreement with Israel, but at the same time he led Assad to believe that he was working for a wider peace agreement, one that would include the Palestinians. In reality, the Palestinians were ignored. They were irrelevant to the structural balance of the global system. The hallmark of, of Kissinger's thinking about international politics is its structural design. Everything is always connected in his mind to everything else. But his first thoughts are on that level, on the structural global balance of power level. And it, as he addresses uh, questions of human dignity, human survival, human freedom, I think they tend to come into his mind as an adjunct of the play of nations at the power game. When Assad found out the truth, it was too late. In a series of confrontations with Kissinger in Damascus, Assad raged about this treachery. He told Kissinger that what he had done would release demons hidden under the surface of the Arab world. Kissinger described the meetings. Assad's controlled fury was all the more impressive for its eerily called, seemingly unemotional demeanor. Assad now retreated. He started to build a giant palace that loomed over Damascus. And his belief that it would be possible to transform the Arab world began to fade. A British journalist who knew Assad wrote, Assad's optimism has gone. A trust in the future has gone. What has emerged instead is a brutal, vengeful Assad who believes in nothing except revenge. See, God sees right through us. We may be great and wonderful on the outside. Actually, let me ask you this. When you're at work and somebody says, how are you doing? How do most people reply? Okay, fine, good, all right. How do you reply if you're having a terrible day? Okay, good, fine. I mean, there's the part of you on the outside that is pretending, and there's the part on the inside that's screaming. Right? But you can't hide that from God. He sees right through it. By ourselves, we're nobody. Nobody whatsoever. It is the, when Jesus is in you that he is somebody, but you're not. It has not and never has, it has never been about you. It's about God. Right? We are told that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? Do you think that God doesn't know? You think that, oh, I'm doing okay, yet he's doing the screaming inside, going, how could you hurt me like that and not take my sacrifice? But one thing I do want you to see here is, who made the first step? God. All right? You see, God knows what's wrong. 
What he's wanting is for Cain to confess. He's wanting for Cain to have that dialogue with him. But we don't see Cain answering at all. In verse 7 it says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, or if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God knows his heart at this particular point in time. Actually, he knew us all along. But I want you to see here what just happened. We see God's compassion and love for those that have sinned. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This is happening after the fact Cain already screwed up. He presented a sacrifice to God, and it wasn't accepted because his heart wasn't right. But God is here reassuring him that if he gets back to doing it right, he will be accepted. That's a loving and compassionate God, isn't it? Places and the periods in which man has known freedom are few and far between. Just scattered moments on the span of time. And most of those moments have been ours. The American people have a genius for great and unselfish deeds. Into the hands of America... God has placed the destiny of an afflicted mankind. God bless America. Do you know, do you know how strong the Israelis are? Do you know how many, how many tanks they have outside Beirut? in 1982 after the massacres of Shatila and other camps in Lebanon while the Israeli army stood beside and the Reagan administration did decide to bring American forces as a neutral peacekeeping force into the Middle East But Assad did understand that very differently. He saw the troops as a part of growing conspiracy between America and Israel to divide these Arab countries and destroy them. Assad decided to get the Americans out of the Middle East. And to do this, he made an alliance with a new revolutionary force of Ayatollah Khomeini's Iran. 
at what Khomeini could bring to Assad was an extraordinary new weapon that he had just created. It was called the poor man's atomic bomb. Ayatollah Khomeini had come to power two years before as the leader of the Iranian revolution, but his hold on power was precarious and Khomeini had developed a new idea of how to fight his enemies and defend the revolution. Khomeini told his followers that they could destroy themselves in order to save the revolution, providing that in the process they killed as many enemies around them as possible. This was completely new because the Quran specifically prohibited suicide. In the past, you became a martyr on the battlefield because God chose the time and place of your death. But Khomeini changed this. He did it by going back to one of the central rituals of Shia Islam. Every year, Shiites march in a procession mourning the sacrifice of their founder Hussein. As they do, they whip themselves, symbolically reenacting Hussein's suffering. Khomeini said that the ultimate act of not just to whip yourself, but to kill yourself, providing it was for the greater good of the revolution. Khomeini had mobilized when the country was attacked by Iraq. Iran faced almost certain death because Iraq had far superior weapons, many of them supplied by America. So the revolutionaries took tens of thousands of young boys out of schools, put them on buses and sent them to the front line. Their job was to walk through the enemy's minefields, deliberately blowing themselves up in order to open gaps that would allow the Iranian army to pass through unharmed. This human sacrifice was commemorated in giant cemeteries across the country. Fountains flowing with blood-red water glorify this new kind of martyrdom. And it was this new idea of an unstoppable human weapon that President Assad took from Khomeini and brought to the West for the first time. But as it traveled, it would mutate into something even more deadly. Instead of just killing yourself, you would take explosives with you into the heart of the enemy and then blow yourself up, taking dozens or even hundreds along with you would become known as suicide bombing. In October 1983, two suicide bombers drove trucks into the U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut. The massive explosion killed 241 Americans. The bombers were members of new militant group that no one had heard of. They called themselves Hezbollah. Although many of them were Iranian, they were very much under the control of Syrian and the Syrian intelligence agencies. President Assad was using them as his proxies to attack America. It was seeing something move that took me out of my trance. And then I recognized, oh yes, Marines were in that building. A lot of Marines were in that building. And that's when I ran down and, and it was a black, black Marine. He looked white the dust that just covered him. I mean, it tells us that we're going to screw up time and time again. But if we get back to what God has to say and doing what God's will is, 
that if you do well, will you not be accepted? The same applies to us today. This is the first time we see the word sin used in the Bible. The Hebrew word is chata. C-H-A-T-T-A-H. That's the English way of doing it. What it means is it's missing the mark like an archer that misses the center of the target. He shoots an arrow. The idea behind it is missing the mark. Sin being defined for the rest of the Bible is missing the mark. Who sets the mark? God. Whoever carried out yesterday's bombings, Shia Muslim fanatics, devotees of the Ayatollah Khomeini, or whatever, it is Syria who profits politically. The most significant fact is that the dissidents live and work with Syrian protection. So it is to Syria, rather than to the dissident group's guiding light, Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran, that we must look for an explanation of the group's activities. Destabilization is Syria's Middle Eastern way of reminding the world that Syria must not be left out of plans for the future of the area. There are no words that can express our sorrow and grief for the loss of those splendid young men and the injury to so many others. These deeds make so evident the bestial nature of those who would assume power if they could have their way and drive us out of that area. But despite his words, within four months, President Reagan withdrew all the American troops from the Lebanon. The Secretary of State, George Schultz, explained, we became paralyzed by the complexity that we faced, he said. So the Americans turned and left. Professor Dinder said it was an extraordinary achievement. He was the only Arab leader to have defeated the Americans and forced them to leave the Middle East. He had done it by using a new force of suicide bombing, a force that was going to spread with unstoppable power. But at this point, both Assad and the Iranians thought that they could control it. Gave it this extraordinary power was that it held out the dream of transcending the corruptions of the world and entering a new and better we are.
heartbeat inside another sort of incident where instead of Syria also Gaddafi was accused of there was another point after a shutdown of an Iranian airplane by Americans there was happening the Lockerbie bombing from Pan Am aircraft over Scotland. President Assad didn't want to have stability, he wanted revenge. Yes, in December 1988, a bomb exploded on a Pan Am aircraft. Almost immediately, investigators and journalists pointed the finger at Syria. The bombing had been done, they said, in revenge for the Americans shooting down an Iranian airliner in the Gulf a few months later. And for 18 months, everyone agreed that this was the truth. But then a strange thing happened. The security agency said that they had been wrong. It hadn't been Syria at all. It was Libya who had been behind the Lockerbie bomb. Syria, of course, was unfortunately accused of many terrorist outrage and of harboring terrorist groups. It appears that we have now restored relations with them, as have the Americans. They're now our friends, although we get no real assurances in the past whatsoever. It strikes me as very strange indeed that many of the things we thought were previously the responsibility of Syria have now dramatically become the responsibility of Libya. Why are you going? Don't you find enough to interest you here? But Assad was not really in control because he had released forces that no one would be able to control. The force that, ten years before, he had brought from Iran to attack the West, the human bomb, was not about to jump like a virus from Shia to Sunni Islam. In December 1992, the militant group Hamas kidnapped an Israeli border guard and stabbed him to death. The Israeli response was overwhelming. They arrested 450 members of Hamas, put them on buses and took them to the top of a bleak mountain in southern Lebanon. They left them there and refused to allow any humanitarian aid through. But the Israelis had dumped the Hamas militants in an area controlled by Hezbollah. They spent six months there and during that time they learned from Hezbollah how powerful suicide bombing could be. Hezbollah told them how they had used it to force the Israelis out of Beirut and back to the border. The first sign that the idea had spread to Hamas was when a group of the deportees marched in protest towards the Israeli border, dressed as martyrs as the Israelis shelled them. But soon became more than just theater. Hamas began a wave of suicide attacks in Israel. Just before nine, at the height of Tel Aviv's rush hour, the bomb ripped apart a commuter bus. An amateur cameraman recorded the scene in the moments afterwards as a dazed woman was helped out of the smoldering wreckage. I didn't want to believe that under my house there is a bomb. And when I realized it's a bomb, I, I started to cry because it was time I saw it in Tel Aviv. Hamas sent the bombers into the heart of Israel cities to blow themselves up and kill as many around them as possible. In doing this, Hamas were going much further than Hezbollah ever had. 
they were targeting civilians, something Hezbollah had never done. The tactic shocked the Sunni world. This was something completely alien to its history. Not only did the Quran forbid suicide, but Sunni Islam did not have any rituals of self-sacrifice unlike the Shias. The most senior religious leader in Saudi Arabia insisted it was wrong. It's not suicide. It is martyrdom in the name of God. Islamic theologians and jurisprudence have debated this issue. Israeli women are not like women in our society because Israeli women are militarized. Secondly, I consider this type of martyrdom operation as indication of justice of Allah Almighty. Allah is just. Through his infinite wisdom, he has given the weak what the strong do not possess, and that is the ability to turn their bodies into bombs like the Palestinians do. Hamas kept sending the bombers into Israel, some days, day after day. The horror overwhelmed Israeli societies, and it completely destroyed the ability of politics to solve the Palestinian crisis. Instead, in the Israeli election of 1996, Benjamin Netanyahu took power. He turned against the peace process, which was exactly what Hamas wanted. And from then on, the two sides became locked together. The human bomb had destroyed the very thing that President Assad first wanted. A real political solution to the Palestinian questions. It was just after one o'clock and the market was full of shoppers. Streams of ambulances came to carry away the dead and the injured. It was a place of appalling suffering. But even with the first grief came the immediate political impact on the peace process. It's impossible. This moment it will be the end, must be the end of this bloody peace process. Verse 8, it says, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You got a sassy mouth. The thing was is that this is a play on words. When he asks and he says, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? Well, Abel was keeper of the sheep. So do I keep my brothers and sisters just like Abel keeps the sheep? Now guess what? We have Cain being guilty of lying to God. How many of us are guilty of that one? Everybody ready to raise their hands. How many times did you ever go, God, if I, you'll only just let me do this, I'll never do that again. Cain asks or says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He's actually being sarcastic. And his remark is challenging God to the fact of, do you even have the authority to ask me that question? He again was giving Cain the opportunity to confess his sin. Giving him the opportunity to repent and Cain doesn't do it. Earlier we see that verse 6, 
God asked Cain, why are you angry? It's an opportunity to confess. And then verse 7, God tells him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Saying, hey, this is a little setback. We can move on from this. To killing his brother. And still God, having a heart for man, sits there and says, where is your brother? Verse 11, so now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. What Cain is being told is he's a farmer, remember? Now he's being told, you're not going to get anything off the ground. It's not going to yield anything to you. You can work and work and work, but it's not going to happen. Verse 12, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on earth. He's always going to be looking over his shoulder. It's the first time man's killed another man. God has declared it wrong. Now he is a fugitive. He's running. Who's he running from? God. Also, the ground is not going to linger, or it's not going to yield its fruit to you. He's going to have to rely on for the rest of his life, all 900 or so years, on other people's hospitality towards him. Because if he tries to do it, it's not going to yield. Verse 16, or 13. And Cain said to my Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Who's he focused in on again? Himself. All about me, me, me. And the punishment is greater than I can bear. Verse 14. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. You did this to me, and whoever finds me is going to kill me. You are the one that has made me a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. In verse 15, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill them. Verse 15 should tell us that there was quite a few other people on the earth by this particular point in time. If Cain and Abel were roughly a hundred years, we don't know how old Adam and Eve were when Cain and Abel were born. Hafas al-Assad had died in 2000. His son Basha became the new president of Syria. He couldn't escape the logic of what his father had started. 20 years before, his father had sent Shia suicide bombers to attack the Americans in Lebanon. Now, as America and Britain invaded Iraq, Basha decided that he would copy his father. 
but what he was about to let loose would tear the Arab world apart and then come back to try to destroy him. Bashar Assad had, was never supposed to have been president. It was always going to have been his elder brother Basil. But then Basil had died in a car crash. So now Bashar took over the giant palace that his father had built above Damascus. Up to this point, Bashar had not been interested in politics. He was fascinated by computers. He founded the Syrian Computer Society and brought the internet to the country. But now he was president. And he set out to attack America. Bashar Assad was convinced that the invasion of Iraq was just the first step of a plot by the Western powers to take over the whole of the Middle East. He knew that the invasion had outraged many of the radical Islamists in Syria. And what they most wanted to do was to go to Iraq and kill Americans. So Bashar instructed the Syrian intelligence services to help them do this. Syrian agents set up a pipeline to begin to feed thousands of militants across the border and into the heart of the insurgency. And it grew. Within a year, almost all of the foreign fighters from across the world were coming through Syria. And they brought suicide bombing with them. The Americans estimate that 90% of the suicide bombers in Iraq were foreign fighters. But it began to run out of control. Most of the jihads had joined the group Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but then turned to killing Shiites in an attempt to create a civil war. And the force that had originally been invented by the Shiites, suicide bombing, now returned and started to kill them. A moment of silence before people realized what was happening. A few seconds ago, we just had repeated explosions in the street below me. People are now fleeing in terror from the central square around the mosque. This is what everybody feared. We just heard another explosion in the distance, that somebody would try to target this religious festival to try to bring about a sectarian conflict in Iraq. There was panic, a terrified stampede. Some of these people were running into the next bombs. We counted at least six separate explosions.
then there was a need that this invasion would have a good effect in the Arab world. And it was made an extraordinary decision. They turned one of the most dangerous men in the world, Colonel Gaddafi, back into a new friend. But this is another story. It was the highest achievement of perception management. A man who had been created as a fake global supervillain was now going to be turned in a fake hero again. And everyone, not just politicians, would become involved. Public relations, academics, television presenters, spies, and even musicians were all going to help reinvent Colonel Gaddafi. I'm not sure just how many people in the Western establishment had by now become the engineers of this fake world. But, as I said, this is another story.
Hörmaschine 54 Hörmaschine Today Abel and Cain Hörmaschine 54 with contribution of Adam Curtis Gary Curry from Coastland Calvary Some piano tunes by Robert Huber a song of the Persian goddess and music by M.L. Phillips. This was a machine 54. Of course, also with the contribution of the World Economic Forum, especially Henry Kissinger. Her machine 54. 